Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we welcome you this beautiful Thursday morning. You know, National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program, and NCB's customers are cooperatives, such as grocery, wholesale cooperatives, food co-ops, purchasing co-ops, credit unions, or housing co-ops. Other customers share in the spirit of cooperation, driven by democratic organizing principles, They may be Native American enterprises, which by their very nature are member-run and member-owned. Others may be community health centers or nonprofit organizations driven entirely by community needs. What they all have in common is a single fundamental principle. They have joined together cooperatively to meet personal, social, and or business needs. And that's the kind of organization we have today in renting partnerships. And we have Ms. Margie Spinney on the line with us this morning. Good morning, Margie. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Well, it's a beautiful day here, too. Okay. And you're in Cincinnati? Yes, we are. Okay. So is Carol Smith on the line also? Yes, I'm here. Great. Carol, I hear you better than I hear Margie. You're coming in very clear. Margie, I don't hear you as well. All right. We're on a mobile phone, and we're going to have to. That's better. So let's start off by talking about this renting partnership and alternative forms of ownership. So you two got together and formed this business. What What is this business? Who want to tell me about that? Well, I'll start and Carol will add to it. Renting partnerships is really a set of practices and procedures that we developed for operating affordable housing through solidarity with the residents. And it allows the residents to be engaged in the management and build social and financial assets because they are contributing to improving the financial income of that project. And we put the savings into a fund which each household can earn credit. And over 10 years, they can build up to $10,000 in financial credits that are theirs to help stabilize them, to do education for their children or whatever, just make make it through a hard time at work or if they lose a job. And it's been a very successful practice. Well, let me make sure I get this understanding. You get a building, you have the renters, the tenants, come in and help to manage that business, and then they get they make money. They get credits, and they can yes. build up $10,000 worth of credits over 10 years, and that's their savings. So they get create financial wealth while they're renting. Yes. Wonderful. Okay. And the, the, essentially, they're participating in the business of management. So they're our business partners. I like this. How do you all come up with that idea? That was Margie's idea. And she approached me when she came up with the concept, and I've been in property management 
my stuff, and, and I really understood how important it was to families, especially low-income families, to have a nest egg, if you will. So I joined forces with her to begin to formulate the practices and procedures, and we found out it worked. Okay. You found out it worked. Discovery. Okay. I really like the idea. Now, they help you in management. So tell me how that works. I'm in property management also, so that's what I do. That's my daytime. That's where I make money on. This is my hobby and where I have a lot of fun talking about co-ops or, in this case, organizations that come together in solidarity to help everybody. Everybody benefits. Well, well, one of the things is, is that we recruit residents as we're developing the property. They're, they're developing community at the time. The basic principles are that you pay your rent on time, you attend the community meeting once a month, and you have a work assignment that you participate in in the community to help stabilize and keep, keep the community looking nice. And they come in the door, they elect based upon what we told them and the fact that they earn credit as they're working and building community. And they understand coming in the door that they will have these past assignments and they are predicated on the fact that they have an earning set. So when they come in the door, they've already, as a body, they already know each other, understand each other, and have agreed that they will work together with each other throughout the whole process. Wow. If I came into this group, how would I decide what I would do? Well, let's just take it from if you're a homeowner and you buy a house and you sort of look at your house and say, well, I'm going to have to mow the grass, right? I'm going to have to pull weeds. I'm going to have to keep it looking nice, maybe plant flowers, maybe clean the common areas if it's a multifamily house. So... Those are the kinds of things that we ask residents to do for work assignments. So we go around with them, and, well, in the case of every project we've done, I just go around, and Carol and I look at what would make a difference, right? And then we make a list, and at one of the resident meetings, residents sign up. Like, I'm going to clean the bathroom in the community room, or I'm going to clean the laundry room, or I'm going to pull the lint out of the dryer every day and check that. Uh, We were in a very drug-infested area, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to sweep the sidewalk so that the dealers see me out there and, and the place looks nice. And that kind of thing has a huge impact on the community around it and the respect that the residents get from everybody, including the drug dealers. Mm-hmm. I was just in a meeting yesterday. We have a lot of limited equity co-ops in D.C., and they're in sort of different arrays of poorly being run or managed or the facility goes down and they're smaller units, four to ten units and so forth. And so we were in a meeting trying to figure out maybe 15, 20 people in this meeting trying to figure out how do we help stabilize them. And I like this idea. I said a lot of them cannot get good management because they can't afford it. If you got a four unit, if one person isn't paying, they don't have the income coming in. So I said the only thing I could come up with is what I call shared management. And this is what you're doing here. But have you thought about uh, the residents paying the bills or helping getting the vendors or collecting the money or anything like that? 
We have, and we think that one of our principles is that everybody needs to be equal and residents don't need to be in charge of other residents or shouldn't be. And they need to establish, I think, policies and procedures as a body, and everybody needs to have an equal voice. I think that it reduces the amount of work a property manager has to do if the residents are fulfilling their commitments to pay their rent on time, come to regular meetings, you're not spending your time trying to reach all kinds of people. You, you just have less to do, so I think it would cut down the property management costs that way. Yes, yes. And that's yeah, what... The, the other part of that is that when when you have everyone working together, that just decreases cost because everyone knows what they have to do and basically they do it and then you don't have that oversight. And when you're coming together and establishing priorities, everyone understands that and can participate in it. Well, what I've also noticed in co-ops, once somebody a tenant knows that they're an owner. That that's, doesn't always happen so quickly, that attitude will transition. But once they know it, they take better care of the property. That's true. So you, you get less less maintenance issues. Uh, well, I think one of the challenges in a co-op, if I'm correct, is that if you have an owner, you said something about one of them, if somebody's not paying their bills, then they don't have the money to pay the property manager. In a running partnership, that would be grounds for eviction if we, we would definitely work with the residents to try to see if there was something that we could do to help overcome this hardship. And the resident equity credits they earn can help them go through hard times because they've, it's a sense like of the kind of credit. That's the kind of credit they have with us. But if somebody is just not doing their part and they're hurting the whole community, then in our situation, we would we would have to evict that person. You know, it's interesting. When we had a situation that was similar to that and people could not sometime attend meetings, this issue was presented to the whole body. And they said, well, if they pay their rent and, and that it really doesn't affect us, they're coming to the meeting, they're not able to come to the meeting, then um, because people's work schedule doesn't allow them, but the critical piece was them not doing their work assignments. They were saying that they had it because it affected everyone. So consequently, they established a policy where, as that if, if you consistently did not uh, fulfill your obligation on your lease that says that you have to do the work assignments, then you were in jeopardy of being evicted because that was something that affects the body. Yeah, I like that. I like that, that they're coming together and they make the policies. They make the policies, and, and really, and they know that everybody's affected by, you know, everybody's affected by whether you pay your rent or whether the property looks nice. It falls on somebody else to do it if you don't do it. And people who bought into this, I mean, they buy into renting partnerships differently than into a co-op. You, to become in a part of a renting partnership, you don't have to have any money to buy in. You just have to have your heart, right, your commitment. And that's what we're counting on. And they don't have to sell their house to get any financial equity that we build. So we thought that this approach, and we, we know that this approach, just meets the needs of people who are at that income level where they're struggling just to, you know, make it. Well, let's 
take our first break and we'll be right back and talk more about people struggling, trying to make it and how this renting partnership supports them. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that now. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.S. at 95.9 FM. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and W.O.L. is an excellent partner because of their motto, Information is Power. And this is the reason that we have this program for you, so that you would get the information about cooperatives and community-based living solidarity and the benefits of it. If you use information, then you'd get the power. All right, so today we have from Cincinnati, Miss Margie Spinney and Miss Carol Smith talking about renting partnerships. So when we left off, uh, Margie, you had made a statement that people that don't have much, low-income folks, this is a way that they can create and build both. You, you mentioned financial wealth, but earlier you talked about social wealth also. Yes. So how do these credits work? You talked about they get financial credits. Does that turn into money at one point? Yes. So in the lease, there is what we call an equity-building agreement. And it actually looks like a amortization table if you were to buy a house where you're paying so much principal every month and so much of your payment goes to interest. So we have so much credits that you can earn each month. The first month might be $59. The next month is $59.39. Or I don't know exactly what it okay. is, but it goes up gradually. And so in order to earn those credits, we had to have measurable things that people could do because this isn't a giveaway. This has to really affect the housing. So people really have to do the things they commit to do. But paying your rent on time, coming to the community meeting, and doing a work assignment are things that are very easily missed. And so it's just, did they do it or did they not do it? And then if they do all those things each month, they earn whatever the number of credits are for that month, and it keeps building. At five years, they are eligible to withdraw credit, and that becomes something like they have a a bank account or something. We have all the money in a fund that they could come to us with a letter and say, I need, I can't pay my rent this month or I, my car broke down or whatever, and just ask for whatever they need of what their earnings have been. They do get a statement every month, just like if you were investing in the bank. And the other thing that really works with us was that they built credit even before they could withdraw their money. Mm-hmm. So we knew people, and there are a lot of people who will do these things all the time, but they pay their rent, they come to the meetings, they do their work assignments, they're really committed, but they just get in a hard time. Well, then they had credit with us. When we could easily make a forbearance on their rent or something and look out something for them to pay it back, even before, you know, they were eligible to withdraw money. So it was a way that we could keep those really good people who were just struggling. And that they were very good about about paying it back, but we were also very flexible about, you know, how they could do that. They might say, I've got a check coming in through 
what that program care of it. Taxes, oh. and I'll get a bulk payment, and I'll pay you when I get it, or something like that, or I'll pay you ten dollars a month for three years, or something. But as long as they were, um, you know, they built a character credit with us. I'm sitting here listening to you, thinking about how to apply this here. I hear this as very similar to co-ops. Margie, I heard you say earlier this different, but I don't hear the difference. I hear it similar too. And well, the difference. Yeah, the difference is you, you don't have to buy and sell to become an owner. And we do have a lease, so the residents can who aren't really honoring the commitments they've made to the community can be evicted. See, the limited equity co-op here in, in the district works very, just really very, very similar to that. The, the down payment or the buy-in is a membership fee, and sometimes it could be the same as a security deposit. It okay, okay. There you go. All right. And so it is pretty similar. Yeah, and you can get evicted. The problem in the district is that the landlord and tenant laws are very favorable to the tenant. And it would be really, I would say, almost impossible to evict somebody if they didn't do their work assignment in, uh, in, the, e in the courts of, in the district. Um, even if it's a building that was part of the lease? You know, I, I've been down there so many times, and they're so <laughs> tenant Bent toward tenants. I mean, you have all kinds of things in your lease, but they won't honor it. Or so. the reality is, what we found is people were either all in or they weren't. Right. So the people who weren't doing their work assignments were the people who also weren't paying your rent, their rent, and okay. or they'd be late. So yes, in reality, I think you are correct that it is difficult if that was the only way they were falling down on their commitment. But when you also have late rent consistently, which is frequently the case, we didn't have that many people. I don't want to make it sound like we had many people in that situation because of the way we organize people before they move in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that they all knew they were coming in because they wanted a different kind of community. This has to be a choice. It's not something the manager is saying, you have to do this. So they were choosing to live in a community that had these kind of expectations of each other. And, and uh, prior to, as, we're, as I said, we were building community as we were developing the building. And a lot of the residents said, well, where I live now, I'm doing it, but I don't have any help. So it, it, it's like, I have no problem doing this because this is what I want. And uh, it was more of a self-select process as anything else, because people who did not want to make these type of commitments, we see them maybe one or two times, and then we wouldn't see them anymore. Because you had to go through an orientation anyway to understand what was being asked of you and what is being expected from you as your as your resident in this piece of property. So consequently, they more or less self-select themselves. Mm. Yeah, we really look at this as, you know, it's... And in between, it's not owning and it's not renting. It's a third choice that people ought to have. And some people, it's not for everybody. So some people aren't ready to commit. We had people in our orientation meetings that would say, I mean, I just remember one who said, I'm an alcoholic and I'm still struggling with recovery and I wouldn't be able to do this, but I want to come back when I'm ready. Fantastic. Um, you know, so you're giving people another choice, something that gives them hope. But it's up to them to choose it. So 
so what we did was we would go out in the community and talk to churches and mostly through like local organizations and talk about what we were doing. And if people want to participate, they, they would come to three meetings and, and we would do an orientation, which is on our website. Most of the first orientation is up on our website. And they get an idea the first meeting what this is about. And the next meeting, we go over the details of it, like look at the lease, look at the schools. Oh, I think we also did another session on what financial assets are and wealth building, why this is, how this can help you in setting your goals and so on. And so after those three meetings, they basically would get a certificate or something said they completed the orientation. And then if we had apartments available, they'd be eligible to apply. If we didn't, we had residents that kept coming to meetings for three years because they liked the community. They liked being there with other people who were caring about the same things. And we had lots of interesting leadership activities and discussions and food. <laughs> so so if they would build up a priority on the waiting list if we didn't have units available based on it, on their attendance because it showed us how committed they were. Oh, I like this a lot. Thank you, guys. I went to your residential orientation, and I say pay rent on time, attend resident meeting, fulfill work assignments, follow house rules. Who makes up the house rules? The residents. They make up the house rules as we're doing our development of the building. Uh, we give them a set of them, and they pick and choose and add and delete for their particular community. It leads to really interesting discussions, too, because we would discuss things like, well, how do you feel about having somebody else talk to your children if, they, if they're, like, running through the grass or running, you know, running through your garden that you made or something like that? And... I just, those were the greatest discussions because a lot of the younger people would say, well, I really like that, but we've never been part of a community like that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take our second break <laughs> in a minute. I really, I really like this and would like to be in some of those conversations. It reminds me, I'll quickly say this before break, is I had somebody on from Greenbelt Homes, which is a 1,600-unit cooperative in Greenbelt, Maryland, which is right outside of D.C. And they started this uh, during the Depression or right after the Depression. Oh, during. Right. And the biggest piece was choosing people to be in there. And they did this selection process. And you say self-select over time, but they had lots and lots of interviews with people to see if they were, you know, if they could work together in group. Or like the other one guy said, he could not at this point. But we'll be right back to talk more about renting partnerships and this wonderful experiment. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, 95.9 FM. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. Ladies, um, Margie and Miss Smith. There's a research project that uh, looked at the HUD-funded co-ops compared to the HUD-funded apartment buildings. And every variable that they looked at, the co-ops outperformed the apartments, such as the physical plant was better, the residents' quality of life was better, they had increased financial wealth, increased social wealth, increased 
political wealth. Foreclosures were much, 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 much less, and rents were much lower. So already in this conversation, it sounds like your project, the physical plant is better. Would you say it's better because it's the people are taking care of it? Oh, yes, and we had these outcomes documented by a third party, too. We found the same thing, exactly that you're saying. The three projects we operated in over the Rhine, which is one of the downtown neighborhoods in Cincinnati, I was told the only three performing uh, low-income housing tax credit projects that they had, the company had in in the Cincinnati area. Um, so they performed financially, and still we were able to save enough money out of the, the budget for the project to pay these equity credits to residents. There was no increase in the cost. So our costs of operating were comparable to other low-income housing tax credits, but our results were we were funding equity credits for residents and the property was performing financially and the other ones weren't. We were also told many times that the area was an oasis in the community where we were, which is one of the higher crime areas at that time in the country. But people would walk in and be amazed at how the flowers, the courtyard, how beautiful it was and how the residents, the pride that they showed in where they lived. We only had, and believe it or not, we only had one eviction set out in 10 years. Wait, oh, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> one eviction in 10 years. One eviction set out in 10 years. Set out. Because this is it, we we had gone through the eviction process a couple of times, but basically people moved. But we had one set out, and the and the uh, county administrator didn't even go in the building because he was admiring the yard and the flowers and what have you. And he was amazed at how well kept the, the property was. We had very very low turnover, which is what makes the credit, which pays for the credits. Actually, that's that is the fact that. An average turnover cost in rental housing nationally is about $4,000 when you count the management time and releasing and marketing, as well as painting and redoing the units and paying the bills while it's vacant and so on. So our residents really are saving that money because they're staying long term. And we had, I think, about an average of about one um, per year. One yeah, one person who might move one person, a, a year, but we, our, our residents' longevity was way over seven years. How many residents? So you got one turnover out of how many? Out of 25. Out of 25 in that project. And then we had two other projects, but we didn't have the full 10 years, so that wasn't studied, but in the evaluation. So I'm giving you statistics from the evaluation of the first project that we did. Okay. This is so exciting. It's like um, I want to shout right now and jump up and cheerlead for you guys. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> because I've got a 68-unit property that, that I manage. It's an apartment building, and I cannot even begin to tell you how many evictions we've had in there in any given year. And the turnover is maybe two years. I mean, if I get somebody in there for seven years, it's the, it's the total exception. And that's 
that's the whole premise is when we say residents add value, residents can add value. I think what people expect, you know, when a property manager contracts with a housing owner or developer or something to provide property management, they take on responsibilities for things they can't control. You know, residents are the one who control whether they stay there, how beautiful the property is, whether people treat themselves, treat each other with respect, you know, the impact they have in terms of the community around them. That's all in resident control, but we don't value those contributions that residents make in our society. And because it's not valued, we lose that there is actual an economic value to it that we've proven through the better performance of the property. And we need to start valuing social equity. And if people may not have money, but they sure can contribute in other ways that make a financial difference, and they deserve to earn some of that return. Well, Carol Smith and I value it as property managers. <laughs> we, yes, we, yes. Know, we know what the difference is. If I take a co-op uh, the, and the people really understand, and you don't get all if you've got a, 50-unit co-op, you won't have all 50 people that understand uh, what the co-op is. But even if you got, out of 50, if you got 20 or 30 people that really get it and they work toward it, it's it's such a pleasure to work in that kind of environment. Uh, yeah, that's true. Carol and I used to say how we go to work every morning and say, boy, aren't we happy we get to be here and do this? One of the big differences I want to say between a co-op and our experience, which definitely we have borrowed a lot from from limited equity co-ops, we, just, we have a different system of deciding what that equity is and how it's given, you know, how residents obtain it financially, because we don't want them to move in order to to get their savings. Um, I lost my train there, so but I just I think that the. We used to expect attendance at meetings about 75%, or we'd say we're doing something wrong. I think that's one of the differences is we really feel strongly that this commitment to coming to community meetings is something that it's a contribution that everybody makes, and it does affect the community when one person is not there. And so we really look at the entire community as a policy body and we do activities and things with people in those community meetings to build trust and relationships so people have the support of other members of the community. And I think that's something that would be difficult in a co-op structure where you're working with just a few people running it as the board. I have a 16-unit senior co-op and and for every meeting, they meet every other month now, but every meeting you have 12 to 13 people in there. Yeah. And so, That's, yeah, it, it can work that way. Um, we establish measures for accountability for ourselves, right? And if we were replicating this in other projects, because we're tracking these things anyway, um, we look at, like, if the meeting number of people in meetings are dropping, that's an indication that there's something going on. And we need to be talking to residents and find out what, what is happening. But is there something that happened that is causing people to feel less committed? Um, did they feel like they weren't? I don't know. We didn't have it. But we would be looking to ourselves to say, what, what do we need to do differently to 
to figure out where people are coming from and why not they're not there. Well, the fifth principle of co-ops is education, training, and information. And when I learned about co-ops about 24 years ago, when I started managing housing co-ops, that was the number one that I liked. And there's a book, and if you haven't gotten it, I encourage you to get it. Uh, Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhard wrote a book called Collective Carriage. And it looks... I'm writing that down. <laughs> Collective Carriage. And she looked at the cooperative movement and the civil rights movement, African-American story and history, and found out there's a lot of of, uh, uh, history with African-Americans, and I have it that the civil rights movement either would not have happened without the co-op influence or it would not have happened the way it did. Um, and which one of the things she says in there is that whenever the co-ops got into trouble, they would go back to their education bees is what they were called. Yeah. They would start the education again, and that's the monthly meetings and learning, going back to and say, okay, what is happening now, which you just said, what's yeah. going on that you won't come to meetings, and what must we put in here, what must we learn, and so forth. Um, yeah, perfect. Fascinating what you are doing, ladies. Maybe, Carol, can you give us any examples of, of experiences of families, of what they go to, where they were when they started into this, and, like, where they were 10 years later or seven years later? Yes. Um, it, it was interesting the way that the first project developed because we only advertised one time uh, a big mailing in our, in our zip code, and um, we uh, wind up with a three-year waiting list from that one advertisement but the families came and i say families came because we had with our first project we had a a mom and both of her sons had units we had four ladies that belonged to the same church and we were finding that people with like minds were bringing other people with like minds with them so that it became a process that it was only word of mouth that we began to have uh, develop our waiting list and to hold our waiting list because upon seeing the um, participation of people of like minds that brought them back. The other interesting thing is that when people feel, as I said, we were developing the community as we were developing the property, and we allowed people to make decisions about color of paint and, and those kind of things, then that really gave them ownership of, of being, uh, this is my apartment, this is my home, this is where I live. And uh, they really had a, a, a buy-in. But the interesting thing, the other one was the loan piece, whereas the residents would get in financial trouble. We rescued maybe about three residents that were on that predatory lending merry-go-round. Because they were allowed to borrow from that. We had a mother who had four children whose car broke down, and she was able to uh, take her $2,000 savings and buy her an automobile to get her back and forth to work. We had uh, another mother to use her money. After five years, they came out with maybe about $4,100. And she used that for her daughter's, uh, help her daughter and her tuition in college. So it's stories like that. Well, one I remember that I didn't even know this. We had somebody who did like a, a news, it was like a volunteer doing a news story that they wanted about this community. And they interviewed the residents. So we had 
they were a whole they were a whole day, and the residents came in and they were photographed and and filmed and they talked about it. And I learned things that I never knew. One of the people I had been can, living can in her car. Margie, we have to take our next break, and I want to come back to that. Uh, okay. But we've got to we've got to, we've got to take a break, and sure. uh, we'll just be right back. I don't want to stop you, but we, we'll take this break, and we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. We're talking about cooperatives, and particularly we're talking about a, a great project in Cincinnati, Ohio. And just let me get a plug in for um, there's going to be a symposium, the third biennial uh, union co-op symposium in Cincinnati on December 1st and the 2nd from 8.30 to 6.30. Uh, you can go on the webpage of CincinnatiUnionCoop.org to get information, C-U-C-I. So yeah. this, I did go out there a couple of years ago, and I'm looking to see you guys out there in December 1st and the 2nd. I'm trying to yeah, like we'll be there. move we'll some be things there. around to get there, but I really enjoyed the people I met there two years ago. So... Margie, you were talking about what I gather was that there was a a resident that somehow had uh, filmed. Somebody came in and looked at their experience. Yes, well, she we didn't know this. She had been on our waiting list, and when she moved in, and she was a good resident, we didn't know a whole lot about her life history. But when they did the interviews of the residents, they found out. She told them she'd been living in her car up until the time she was able to move in. And I was just so moved because she was the person who was willing to do everything, help everybody. I love telling stories about residents, so Carol and I can, can do that. <laughs> we, had a, we had a young man, uh, like I said, a mother who had her two sons there with her. He was an employee of Delta. And uh, in this area, Delta moved out. Uh, they downsized, and it cut his job. And he took his um, equity and moved to California where he could get a job, continue to work for Delta. We had another lady who started in with us, but her uh, significant other did not have a good legal background. <laughs> <laughs> he did not pay his things she was supposed to pay. <laughs> so uh, we were somewhat cautious and we talked to her about it and she really uh, broke the relationship off and moved in uh, and it's interesting uh, she had been there maybe about three years and she went online dating she married and she, and her and her husband uh, took their equity and used it as a uh, to help with the down payment on a home and once she was out she came, she came back and she said, I really miss you all. I want to come back. <laughs> she yeah, liked the they community. Miss the community. They, they miss the community because she felt isolated in the community that she moved to, which was suburbia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have a lot of a lot of similar stories. One woman I remember was just very distrustful of everybody. She said things that made other people not feel so good. But gradually, over time, because of our community meetings, and, and she would see people over and over, 
And she began to see, well, yeah, other people do the things they say they're going to do, too. It isn't, it isn't just me. And it was really wonderful to see her growth, you know, in terms of being able to trust other people. So the results of this is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's uh, I like your $10,000 in 10 years because the study that I was telling you about with the HUD properties, uh, somebody, they got a, like a 7.1% return on their investment. Again, the investment could have been the one month's rent or the security deposit. It seems like your return would be much higher than that. The The thing that they did not include in that study, though, in that 7.1 return was that people in a co-op gets to write off their taxes, their per- percentage of the taxes, and the, any interest, their percent of interest. And in, there was one study of one property in Atlanta where a two-bedroom was running $500 a month in the co-op out in an apartment building, it would have been seven or $800 a month for the same yeah. same unit. Oh, absolutely. So so they got savings, the opportunity cost of, they got savings of 200 to $300 a month. So you you got savings. Now, why aren't there more? I mean, what, what does it take to get more of these projects going? Yeah, that's, that's what we, that's, thank you for that question because, what we think it takes is social investment. And the reason I say that is that if you have an existing community where the housing is older, it may be affordable, but it's deteriorating, eventually it's going to deteriorate to the point where it's not safe and where residents are paying rent, but they're, they're really, eventually they're going, to, they're going to have to leave because the housing just isn't healthy and safe anymore. On the other hand, if market rate developers come in and redo the housing, then the rents go up to where the people who live there can't afford it. So people generally then turn to the government and say, well, we have housing programs for that, and they'll come in and fix it. But the reality is the, the number of people who need decent, affordable housing that are working for a living, too, maybe making $12 an hour, and that number of people is huge, and there's no way the government's going to provide housing for all these people. So I don't want to go on too long, but we believe that we need to get socially conscious investors involved in buying and, and rehabilitating real estate that they could rent to renting partnerships, and we would master leases and even guarantee them a return on their investment but their ownership would keep the housing permanently affordable for the social purpose yeah, of helping residents who need affordable housing. So that's where we think we need to go, and we think it's very doable. Well, we just can, have to get it off the ground. Can renting partnerships uh, buy the property? Well, if we had to buy the property, we have to borrow the money, and the, borrow, the borrowing the money would add to the rent. Right, so in order, if we don't have subsidy for the rent, and we're saying there's just not enough subsidy to go around, um, one way is to have a real estate investor that, with a social purpose, buy the housing to keep it permanently affordable. We don't have to pay debt, so we can all that financing cost is not included in the rent anymore. We might pay the owner a three percent return on their investment in the housing, so. We're paying them a, a cash flow, but we don't have to pay off a loan, and we don't have to pay off interest on a loan, and that reduces the rents to make it affordable for the people. 
we think we can do this for people earning twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year, you know, and get rents of about six hundred dollars a month without a subsidy. Wow. Okay. So you need, you need capital. You need capital, and you're saying if you find somebody that's willing to invest their capital in a social mission. Yes. And you call it social investing. Yes. Okay. Social purpose. We call it social purpose investing, and we are now, you know, trying to talk to some of the foundations in Cincinnati about helping us get this kickstarted, because I think they could help assure investors who weren't used to doing this is something new, right? That you know they vetted us, you know, and that we're trustworthy. But the you know the financial performer. And that's my side of the part of this thing. Um, you know, we'll demonstrate that if if we buy the property at the right price and we have a have an average budget for management comp compared to other rental housing, that this is doable. We can pay a return and keep the housing. Their investment keeps the housing affordable. If we do it in the right way, like almost like a cooperative, the real estate investment group doesn't have to sell the property ever to get their money back out. They just sell shares like a mutual fund. So the property stays stable and permanently affordable. Well, if a 25-unit property, and Carol, I don't know what your company or management fee would be, but here it would be, I don't know, 6 or 7% of the income. Yeah, but then... Plus a lot of administrative costs on top. Right. So I was looking at trying to see a model where if I could get the members to do some of the work and we maybe do the oversight of those members. And I like the idea where they wouldn't be over the other members, uh, the other residents. Right. Uh, Then maybe we could get that down to 3%. Yeah, right. And sharing sharing the management. So that's what's been going on in my head, and this has helped to fuel that. We only have about a minute and a half left, so I need to ask you if both of you could take a minute to say uh, whatever you'd like to say to people out there just listening. Final remarks. Okay. I think that it should be done nationwide, let me put it that way, because there are a lot of hurting communities, and with the uh, focus back on inner cities now, there's a lot of gentrification, and people will be moved out of their homes, and this is one way to bring back or to maintain affordable housing and keep a diverse and inclusive community. Totally agree. Margie, you have about 30 seconds. I really don't know what else to add. I think my hope is that because you are in Washington and there's policy people there, that we can focus on everybody to be look back at, at building communities that work for people where everybody invests in a community and earns a, and earns a return, a limited return maybe. But, but well, we got we got to go. Margie, I'm sorry. We have to go. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much for being on, and we'll see you next Thursday. Please have a cooperative week. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.S. and 95.9.